0: This is
1: American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class about the end of the American Revolution and the 1783 Treaty of Paris, taught by University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill professor, Kathleen Duval. Welcome to History 238 at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In the last lecture that I gave to this class, French and American forces defeated the British at the Battle of Yorktown And British public opinion had shifted away from continuing this long war to put down the rebellion in the 13 British colonies that were rebelling. So now today we're going to go to Paris in July of 1782, where Britain and its former colonists were beginning to negotiate what would be the result of this war for American independence. First of all, independence itself was a foregone conclusion. The former colonies, the 13 of them that had risen in rebellion against their empire were going to be an independent nation. There had been several attempts by the British over the course of the war to negotiate an end to the war, giving these colonies everything short of independence. The colonies had decided to keep fighting and so One result of the Treaty of Paris in 1782 was definitely that they were going to be independent. There were three issues that were to be decided in Paris. First of all, the post-war relationship between Great Britain and its former colonies, especially the economic relationship. Would they have no relationship? Would they be enemies? Would they not trade? Would they go back? to the post-war status of an empire and its colonies in economic terms where the United States would produce raw materials for the industrializing empire of Great Britain? Or would they find a way to be more equal, friendly nations, allied nations perhaps? What would be the relationship between Great Britain and the United States? Second, what would be the fate of loyalists people in the United States who had opposed the rebellion and independence, including enslaved people who had escaped to British lines over the course of the war. And third, how big would the United States be? Would Britain surrender just the Atlantic coast or also the lands west of the Appalachians, Canada, Florida? Would those places be part of the United States would they continue to be part of the British empire? At the opening of negotiations, Benjamin Franklin told British officials that, given the fact that they were going to have to recognize American independence, they should mollify the American people. And importantly, Franklin argued, keep the United States from being dependent on France, Britain's main enemy, by bringing the United States into a good relationship with Britain, bringing the United States back into the British fold, even as it continued as an independent nation. Franklin warned the British, this reconciliation is not gonna be easy. Americans are very angry about this war. This war went on a long time, there was a lot of suffering. You're gonna have to give them something big. And Franklin suggested the solution to this problem, the way to bring the United States back into the arms of Great Britain was to give the United States all British lands on the continent as reparations for the war. Give the United States Canada, give them the West, give them Florida. That will appease them now, bring pull them away from France, And it will help prevent conflict in the future, he said, because if Britain claims lands out there on the edge of the United States, that's going to lead to conflict before too long between the United States and Britain. So basically, Franklin's proposal looked something like this. It was audacious. This new United States was in debt. They owed money to British merchants. They owed money to France and Spain. They had no way of raising revenue, of forcing uh, anybody in the United States to pay revenue into the federal treasury to repay this debt. They had an unpaid hungry army that knew it had just won a war and expected to be rewarded. The British still occupied New York City Charleston and Savannah. All of Canada was securely held by Britain and had Canadians had proved during the war that they did not wanna be part of the United States. They had every opportunity to join the United States. In the West, the posts in the Great Lakes were still held by the British. In West Florida, if you'll remember from my previous lecture, the Spanish had won several posts from Britain. The Spanish held Mobile and Pensacola. And there were native nations throughout the region, throughout the continent, of course, that had not surrendered when the British surrendered at Yorktown. But Benjamin Franklin could make the most outrageous proposals sound reasonable. The new British prime minister listened to a point. He definitely first said, we will not give you Canada. That is not happening, Franklin. But he told Franklin, Britain would be willing, we would be willing to surrender the West south of the Great Lakes, so not Canada, but everything to the south. And Britain's reasoning here, in addition to Franklin's reasons, were this is a troublesome place. Some of it at the end of the revolution was actually held by Spain. Spain had won from Britain during the war. It was an expensive place to maintain, and it was full of native allies of Britain who very much ran the place themselves. Britain really did not control the West in any way. Now, of course, those very native allies would be outraged, will be disgusted by Britain's betrayal of them in giving this place away and even imagining that they could give this place away to the United States but there were no native American representatives in Paris in 1782. Now, Americans, European allies, France and Spain were there. They were there in Paris and Spain, the Spanish absolutely knew they had won a lot of this territory from Britain during the war and Spain also held Louisiana and Texas and Florida. So the entire Western two-thirds or so of the continent was recognized by europeans as being part of the spanish empire um, as well as of course mexico and places to the south benjamin franklin would have to maneuver around this so we can compare if we sort of think of this rather than benjamin franklin's audacious proposal that all of north america that Britain has any claim to, should be part of the United States. This is sort of the more reasonable request of the United States, that they get the Eastern Seaboard, which had been the 13 colonies, and pretty much everything else to the Mississippi River, except for the narrowest definition of what belongs to Spain. The posts that Spain had won during the war, And Britain has already said, Britain is going to return Florida, what's today the state of Florida to Spain at the end of the revolution. So that's what the United States somewhat more realistically wants. Spain in turn makes a proposal um, of a smaller United States, that the United States can have the places that it clearly controls, that clearly were Britain's to grant independence to from Maine to Georgia, but that, everything west of the Appalachians should be Spain's because it was won during the course of the American Revolution, as well as Florida. Now, France needed to appease Spain for its participation in the war. France had drawn Spain into the war and one of the things that France had promised Spain as part of the war was that Spain would win back Gibraltar. Gibraltar is that piece of land at the very Southern tip of Spain that it irritated Spain to no end that the British had occupied in 1704. Now Gibraltar had been contested. It's obviously at a key position the entrance to the Mediterranean there between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Gibraltar had been contested since antiquity at least Occupied in turn by, by Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans, Visigoths, Moors, um, Spain, and the British since 1704. In 1779, after Spain joined the, the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War against Britain, the Spanish and the French began what historians count as the 14th ever siege of Gibraltar. They besieged, the Spanish and the French besieged the British at Gibraltar from land uh, by land from Spain and by sea a spanish fleet surrounded and blockaded Gibraltar for 3 years 7 months and 12 days the final days of the siege of Gibraltar 14th siege of Gibraltar came in early september 1782 during the negotiations that were ongoing in paris that had begun in july in a 6-day battle The British destroyed the floating batteries that the Spanish had constructed. The British drove back the Spanish and killed more than 1,000 of the Spaniards and others who were besieging Gibraltar. So France needed a compensation package for Spain because they were not going to get Gibraltar back. So here's France's proposal. And you can see it's sort of in between what the United States is asking for and what the Spanish suggest. The French say, okay, yes. uh, The Americans obviously get what had been the 13 colonies. They also get to keep Eastern Kentucky, what what, what we know as Eastern Kentucky and Tennessee, the lands between the Ohio and Tennessee rivers. The Spanish get the Floridas, of course, because they won them in the war and will draw that border, what the Spanish have won at, uh, um, at the Tennessee River. So you can see that part of what's now Mississippi and Alabama um, and Western Georgia uh, will go to Spain under the French proposal. The British, they said, should keep the Northwest and the region north of the Ohio River. Now, this seems like a strange proposal, right, for the French to be suggesting that they give more to their British enemies than than, uh, the Americans would give to the British. Um, But the reason for this is that the French were determined to keep the United States as weak as possible. Um, And keeping them weak and dependent on the French, which is what France wants, um, will be easier if the British are a strong neighbor on the U.S. border. If the U.S. is scared of the British, they will be more dependent on the French.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: The American delegation faced a delicate situation. Their enemy was offering them the deal they wanted. Their ally was opposed to it. Congress sent John Adams to help. Now, Benjamin Franklin is a consummate diplomat, politician. He has some resentment at Britain for sure. Um, He wore the same coat to the peace negotiations in France that he had been wearing when he was humiliated in front of parliament in 1774. And uh, he'd had a good experience in Paris during the war. But John Adams was thoroughly anti-French. Adams grumbled that the policy of French foreign minister, the Count de Vergennes, against the United States was, uh, listen to how Adams describes it, to keep his hand under our chin to prevent us from drowning, but not to lift our heads above the water. So he's, Adams is very suspicious of the French and their motives and their desire to keep the United States under their thumb. At dinner, uh, he went to dinner, he convinced, he was convinced that the Count of Virgin and his wife who were hosting this dinner were trying to get him to put down his guard. Adams later wrote, she made me sit next to her on her right hand and was remarkably attentive to me the whole time. The Count who sat opposite was constantly calling out to me to know what I would eat and to offer me ghetto, claret, and Madeira, etc. He was convinced they weren't just being good hosts, right, offering him wine, making conversation. It was a plot to get him to reveal the American negotiating strategy. Adams was the descendant of Puritans. He, uh, was proud, uh, writes how proud that he was to triumph over this temptation, to not reveal anything, not to enjoy himself in Paris. Adams Franklin and John Jay, who was also part of, of, of the negotiators for the United States, were in a bind. Under the treaty that they had signed with France, they were not allowed to make a separate peace with Great Britain. And France, under its Treaty of Alliance with Spain, was not allowed to make peace without Spain's agreement. So the Americans really felt that they were being held hostage for Spain's benefit, and they realized the best terms for the United States would be a separate peace with Great Britain, and that's what they did, despite their alliance with France. The United States and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Paris, the commissioners from both sides signed the Treaty of Paris on September 2nd, 1783. Uh, the British commissioners were disgusted enough that they refused to sit for the portrait. They were just done with this revolution completely. So that's why Benjamin West's planned portrait of the British and US commissioners only has US commissioners in it. Uh, Vergen, the French foreign minister, minister was appalled at this betrayal. But Franklin hinted to Virgin that if he made too much fuss about it, he would be even further pushing the United States into the arms of Britain. Better to act nobly about it now and uh, try to keep the French-US relationships strong. So France and Spain signed treaties as well with Great Britain and the war was over. <laughs> The American delegation went behind France's back because Britain gave them all they hoped for and almost all that they dreamed of. The The Treaty of Paris gave the United States independence, of course, it declared the uh, the United States free, sovereign and independent. The British agreed to withdraw their troops from American territory with all uh, with all convenient speed. The British gave in to John Adams' demands about the rights to fish off of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, that was important to New England. The British promised the United States unencumbered navigation of the Mississippi River. We'll return to that in a moment. And the British backed off on their demands for loyalists. All they did in the Treaty of Paris, all the British did was insist that Congress recommend to the states that refugees, loyalist refugees, be allowed to come home and reclaim their property. Um, Both the United States and the British knew that, that the states would probably ignore this recommendation. Article seven of the treaty promised that Britain would evacuate occupied areas without, and this is quoting from the treaty, without carrying away any Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants. In other words, those enslaved Africans and African-Americans who had run to British lines uh, would just be returned to their masters. Finally, the treaty gave everything between the Atlantic and the Mississippi River, including the entire Trans-Appalachian West um, from the Great Lakes, from Canada, South to Florida, to the United States, completely ignoring Spain, except for that sliver of Florida and completely ignoring Britain's native allies and all of the native people who lived in and controlled that place. So to recap, in the Treaty of Paris, the United States sold out its French and Spanish allies and Britain sold out its native and African American allies. The British evacuated New York City, Charleston and Savannah um, generals, British generals on the ground, though, ignored Article 7. They took Black and white loyalists with them when they left. They just were not going to abandon um, enslaved people who'd run to the British for safety back into the hands of their former masters. So, for example, in New York City in late fall of 1783, uh, more than 27,000 soldiers, British soldiers and three, uh, sorry, more than seven... Uh, Let me start. More than 27,000 British soldiers and 30,000, more, 30,000 black and white loyalists were evacuated from New York City on 100 ships. Before they left New York City, British soldiers cut the ropes that were used to hoist the flag and left the British flag flying at the southern tip of Manhattan, and they greased the flagpole to make it as hard as possible for the Americans to replace the British flag, although they did manage to do that. On paper, the paper that the US and British delegates signed in 1783, the United States gained a vast Western empire. On the ground, though, it was much more complicated. The British continued to occupy forts, including Niagara and Detroit, along the Great Lakes. And they said the United States had to repay its war debts from before the war, before Britain would evacuate those posts. Spain Spain ended up, as I said, signing a separate treaty with Britain in which it received East Florida as well as West Florida that it had won during the war, that Spain had won during the war. The Spanish declared that the parts of the Treaty of Paris signed between Britain and the United States that gave places that Spain claimed as part of its empire to the United States were invalid, and Spain basically began to try to enforce its proposal, its version of way, the ways that North America should be divided up after the war. Spain was already occupied forts west of the Appalachians that it had seized during the war. And because Spain had control of New Orleans, which it had had as part of Louisiana since the Seven Years War, Spain closed the Mississippi to the United States. Now, this is tremendously important to the United States because if they are going to expand, if their farms are going to expand across the Appalachians, they're going to need to get those agricultural products to market. It's extremely expensive to cart them back over the Appalachians to to, to ports on the East Coast. So the much easier, the much more profitable way to get those crops to market are to Um, send them down the Ohio and Tennessee rivers to the Mississippi and out the port of New Orleans. Spain says, nope, you are not using the port of New Orleans Americans. And if we catch you on the Mississippi River, which we control, we will seize your goods and your ships, your boats. Native nations occupied almost all of the contested land, almost all of the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River, some 25,000 square miles Um, Their sovereignty over that land not only was true on the ground, it had been recognized repeatedly by European empires, including by the British in 1763 at the end of the Seven Years' War and Pontiac's War. Native nations there did not accept uh, the claiming, the invasion, the domination of their lands based on a treaty that they hadn't been a party to, based on a war that they had not surrendered in. The Six Nations Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, told the British commander of Fort Niagara, I could never believe that your king could pretend to cede to America what was not his own to give. Spain and Britain, even though they're enemies of each other, Spain and Britain both continued to supply native nations with military goods, weapons and ammunition. Um, they continued to supply the Ohio Valley Confederacy, the Miamis and Shawnees and Lenape is there. And they supplied an emerging Confederacy, native Confederacy in the south made up of Creeks and Choctaws and Chickasaws and some Cherokees. Both Spain and Britain hoped to keep native nations as a buffer between their claims, the British in Canada and the Spanish to the west of the Mississippi and down through Mexico. Um, as a buffer against American expansion into those places. So if the United States wanted to expand West, which they absolutely did, they would have to win it on the battlefield. So the fighting ended in the East with Yorktown in 1781, or you could say with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, since we know from the novel revolutionary that some fighting did continue after Yorktown, even in mainland North America. But if those battles end by 1783, war continued in the West for another 12 years. This war went badly at first for the new American nation. There were many raids by native warriors on settlements that tried to creep out onto native land. There were skirmishes between uh, native fighting forces and settlers. And there were some important defeats of US troops in this era. In October 1790, the Miami war chief Little Turtle lured an American force that was led by General Josiah Harmer across the Ohio River and deep into territory that was controlled by Miami's and Shawnees and other members of the Ohio Valley Confederacy. The militia, as you might expect, under Harmer broke and ran after this attack um, and the regulars were um, devastated. Were, were many, many, many of them were killed by the Confederacy forces. A year later in the fall of 17, uh, 1791, General Arthur St. Clair led a new American army west. There were over 2000 men with the army, soldiers in the army, both militia and regulars, and some 200 women, both enlisted women and camp followers. uh, St. Clair led them into Ohio country to try to defeat the Confederacy. By then George Washington was president and he wrote St. Clair as St. Clair was leaving to warn St. Clair, Washington wrote, as one whose early life was particularly engaged in Indian warfare, I feel myself competent to counsel General St. Clair in three words, beware of surprise. Again and again, General, beware of surprise. Now, George Washington was a great general. Arthur St. Clair, not so much. In 1777, during Burgoyne's campaign, St. Clair had been the commander at Fort Ticonderoga and he allowed the fort to be captured virtually without a shot because he neglected to fortify the high ground above the fort. St. Clair was no less negligent in November 1791, he posted just a few sentries overnight um, and Confederation forces, mostly Miamis and Shawnees swept into the camp, surprised the forces, virtually unopposed, the militia broke and ran um, and uh, left the regulars to be killed. On the United States side, 630 men were killed and 286 wounded, so more than half the men were casualties, and most of the 200 women were either killed or captured. It was an overwhelming defeat for the United States, as devastating as Braddock's defeat had been back in the 1750s. Washington's defeat in the seven years at the beginning of the Seven Years' War, Harmer's defeat and Saint Clair's defeat were greatly embarrassing to the new American national government, um, and they also those victories on the Native side persuaded many native fighters to persist in their raids or join in the raids against American settlers who were trying to move on to their land. Now, war also continued in the South, particularly between Georgia and the Creeks, the Creeks being supplied by the Spanish. Alexander McGillivray was one of the main leaders, Creek leaders in this war. Alexander McGillivray, you can tell from his name, he has Scottish parentage. His father was a Scottish trader and merchant, but Alexander McGillivray's mother was Creek and the Creeks are matrilineal. So by having a Creek mother and a Creek family through her, Alexander McGillivray, despite the name that we know him by, was fully Creek. He had a clan, he had membership in the Creek. So he was a Creek leader. This is not a picture of him. This is a uh, Creek leader from around the same time. We don't have a picture of Alexander McGillivray, but this is, gives you some idea of what, how he might've dressed. Alexander McGillivray had the ambition of building a Southern Confederacy uh, to sort of parallel the Confederacy that we've been talking about for for decades in the Ohio Valley, to build it out of his people, the Creeks and also the Chickasaws, Choctaws, and Cherokees. Um, together with the with Choctaws and Chickasaws, he wrote. Alexander McGillivray wrote. It is well known that from the beginning of the settlement of the English colonies of Carolina and Georgia up to the date of that treaty, the Treaty of Paris, never have they had title to or pretended to own these our lands. So it's reflecting what the Six Nations diplomat said um, that Britain cannot in a treaty that we weren't party to give away lands that don't belong to them, that belong to us. McGillivray worked very hard to bring in support from the Spanish, um, who agreed that the Americans wanted to overrun this land. And, and the Spanish knew that their best um, opportunity for holding on to it in the face of the United States and the U.S. growing population was a strong alliance with the Creeks and other strong Native nations. One Spanish official wrote about his worries of the unmeasured ambition of a new and vigorous people hostile to all subjection, advancing and multiplying with a prodigious rapidity. Nobody can believe how fast the US population is growing in these years. So the Creeks and the Spaniards banded together um, and they officially allied both with each other and with other Southeastern native nations, including the Choctaws, the Chickasaws and, and the group of Cherokees who were still fighting in this era. Um, So for example, in the Treaty of Pensacola in 1784, the Treaty of Pensacola was signed between the Spanish and the Creeks. The Treaty of Pensacola declared that the Treaty of Paris signed between Britain and the United States was invalid in its claim that Britain could give to the United States land that belonged to native nations and that was part of the Spanish empire. And I think one of the things the Treaty of Pensacola shows us is that a native nation like the Creeks can agree to being part of the Spanish Empire because it really doesn't affect them at this point in any way except to, to provide them with a good source of, of trade and especially of military assistance. Very different, the Creeks know, uh, than being part of the United States, which would mean um, having to surrender their lands, uh, much of their lands to the United States. So also in the Treaty of Paris, also the Treaty of Paris declared the free nation of Creeks, and the language here is really important, the free nation of Creeks expect his majesty, the king of Spain, to protect them against those who believe they have a sovereign right to their villages. Um, Continuing its careful wording, the Treaty of Pensacola said, Spain agrees that the Creek nation is the proprietor. Over and over, it says, yes, Indians own these lands, and the other treaties that Spain made with native nations in this era have the same kind of language. In the Treaty of Pensacola, the king promised the Creeks to secure and guarantee to them those lands which they actually hold according to the right by which they possess them. So Spain makes these treaties with the Creeks, the Choctaws, and the Chickasaws, and began a secretly sending even more military aid to its native allies that were fighting the United States. So, to wrap up, in the Treaty of Paris, the United States got everything that John Adams hoped for, everything short of Canada that Benjamin Franklin hoped for, much beyond what they expected. But what was promised on paper was very different from the reality in the early decades of the United States.
0: Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you.
1: You can email us at podcasts at c span.org.